Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called, Is Christianity a Sublime Bigotry? Ten Reflections on the Gospel and the World Religions. And it's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, April 20th, 2008. In our politically correct culture, few opinions generate more hostility than ones like the words of Jesus from this week's reading in John 14:6. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Or consider Peter's words from Acts 4:12. There is no other name than Jesus under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Or one more example from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 8, from this week's lectionary. Truly, Jesus is a stone that causes us to stumble, and a rock of offense. These uncompromising words not only provoke controversy, they raise an honest question. In his World Christian Encyclopedia, David Barrett identifies 10,000 distinct religions, incredibly, 150 of which have a million or more followers. Is it reasonable to believe that Jesus is the only way and that the other 9,999 religions are false? 500 years ago, the French jurist Jean Baudin imagined a conversation about this question in a book called Colloquium of the Seven about Secrets of the Sublime. A naive Christian asked the question, who can doubt that the Christian religion is the true religion, or rather the only religion? To which an unbeliever responded, almost the whole world. So, if almost the whole world doubts the claims of Peter and Jesus from this week's scripture readings, what's a Christian to think? Many people today favor some sort of pluralism, by which I understand the belief that no one religion can or should claim to be normative for all people and superior to all other religions. Pluralism insists on a radically egalitarian perspective. It grants parity and equal validity to all religions. For example, a traditional Japanese saying suggests that despite their outward differences, all religions connect with the same divine reality. As the saying goes, although the paths to the summit may differ, from the top one sees the same moon. Or again, in the Bhagavad Gita of Hinduism, Lord Krishna proclaims, Whatever path men travel is my path. No matter where they walk, it leads to me. I would suggest that there are two broad types of religious pluralism. A soft version appears in popular culture, the media, entertainment, in everyday conversations with friends. It's epitomized in the question, don't all religions really teach the same thing? 
And secondly, a hard version of pluralism among, among scholars, particularly like John Hick, argues a sophisticated pluralist position in historical, philosophical, and religious treatments of the subject. Both the popular and the scholarly versions of pluralism dismiss the words of Peter and Jesus as number one, morally repugnant, number two, intellectually untenable, and number three, politically disastrous. John Hick speaks for many people when he writes about traditional Christian views that, quote, only diehards who are blinded by dogmatic spectacles can persist in such a sublime bigotry, end quote. Radical religious pluralism sounds and feels good. And across the years, I've always wanted to believe it. But I can't, because I don't think it's true. To me, it's like the beer commercial. Tastes great, less filling. Instead, I've come to a number of conclusions that, although they don't solve the problem of Christianity and the world religions, guide my thinking. <clears throat> Here are ten reflections. Number one, some religious views and practices are clearly false, harmful, and even despicable. I'll never grant David Koresh religious parody with Mother Teresa. I don't think that Aztec human sacrifice in Buddhist almsgiving can expect equal allegiance. Hindu widow burning, female infanticide, phallic worship, and the mass suicide of 913 people at Jim Jones's People Temple in Northern Guyana, all these strike me as badly wrong religious views. And so pluralism that consistently treats all religions as equally valid comes at the unacceptably high price of endorsing the diabolical as well as the divine, which is a polite way of saying that, in truth, most people don't and shouldn't believe that all religions are true. Number two, the claim that all religions teach the same thing is patently false. That's precisely what religions don't do. Of course, at a general level, one can easily document broad similarities among religions, such as various renditions of the Golden Rule. But when you examine the historical and theological particularities of religions, you discover drastic differences. Judaism, Christianity, and Islam are all famous for their radical monotheism and they all teach that their religion alone is right. But Shinto and many African traditional religions are polytheistic. Theravada Buddhism is non-theistic. And to take one more example, the scientific materialism of a Richard Dawkins is atheistic. Two corollaries follow from this simple observation. First, it's patronizing in the extreme to say that all religions teach the same thing. To, doubt, to tell a Baha'i person, for example, that her beliefs are really no different than those of a Rastafarian. Further, contradictory religious claims like the ones I've just mentioned, they might all be false, 
but they can't all be true. To take just one example, monotheism and polytheism cannot both be right. Number three, pluralism tries to solve this problem of contradictory truth claims in two ways. People like John Hick appeal to agnosticism. He says that the ultimately real, that's capital U, capital R, because he thinks that to use the word God biases the discussion, the ultimately real, says Hick, is unknown and unknowable, quote, forever hidden beyond the scope of human conception, language, or worship. For Hick, religions are imperfect, cultural, relative, and symbolic expressions of this ultimately real. But if we apply his own criterion to his own views of pluralism, how can Hick stand outside or above the discussion and claim to know the way things really are? Clearly, he does not think his position is just one imperfect position among others. He thinks that he's right, and he wants to persuade us of that, even to convert us to his opinion. Further, why does Hick argue that all religions are true? Why not argue that they're all false? In other words, if the appeal to agnosticism remains consistent, you can't confidently claim to know anything about ultimate religious reality. A second way that pluralism tries to solve the problem of contradictory truth claims is by identifying a so-called common essence in all the religions, some lowest common denominator in them all. But this tends toward a very subjective interpretation. It stumbles upon the previous point and it distorts how adherents understand their own religious traditions. Number four, Christians don't have to reject everything about other religions. They acknowledge areas of both agreement and disagreement, and of course they struggle over the latter. In most areas of human knowledge, when you encounter contradictory views, you don't throw up your hands and concede that they're both true. No, you study hard, make an informed choice, and then remain open to further insight. And notice, too, how this Christian view is far more tolerant and liberal than atheism, which rejects the beliefs of every religion. Number five. The problem of relating 10,000 different religions to each other is not a Christian problem. In other words, it's an equal opportunity problem that confronts every religion, every person, and every worldview. Dismissing the Christian approach as wrong-headed, which is one option, does not solve the problem or make it go away. The problem awaits an alternative view from atheists, Jews, Muslims, Zoroastrians, and for that matter, from the 9,995 other religions that David Barrett has identified. And we don't have an infinite number of alternatives. We all operate with limited options. By and large, Christians do as adequate a job at addressing these thorny issues as believers from other traditions.
Number six, I agree with the liberal Jewish writer Michael Kinsley that it's not wrong or intolerant to try to convert other people. If you think that someone is wrong on some issue, it's entirely reasonable to try to change their mind. Christians should vigorously protect and promote the right of every person to hold any faith or no faith at all. And we should extend to every individual in every culture unfailing courtesy and kindness. We should never prohibit, hinder, manipulate, or, co or coerce the beliefs of others. But that doesn't mean you can't conclude that someone's beliefs might be false and consequently try to persuade them of your understanding of what's true. Pluralists like John Hick wrongly argue that you can't disagree with a person and still be nice to them. Number seven. A rule of thumb in Bible interpretation is to understand the complex and ambiguous parts of Scripture in light of simple and straightforward passages. For Christians, it is unthinkable that God will treat any person of any time, place, or religion unfairly. In other words, Christians are unqualified optimists when it comes to the character of God. There are many things in the Bible that I don't understand, but I have absolute confidence that God will treat every person with perfect love and justice. Job 34, verse 10. Number eight. Instead of discarding what you don't like in Scripture and ending up with a Bible that reflects only your own biases, as Thomas Jefferson did, Christians should hold together two broad themes. First, God desires that no person should perish and that every person be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. 1 Peter 2.4, 2 Peter 3.9. Christ is the atoning sacrifice not only for Christians, but, quote, for the entire cosmos, 1 John 2.2. 2. Peter anticipates the universal restoration of all things, Acts 3.21. And secondly, in addition to this universal salvific will of God, we see the particularity of Jesus in verses like John 14.6 in Acts 4.12, that Jesus alone is God's ultimate means of salvation. Number nine, exactly how the universal love of God in the particularity of Jesus fit together isn't clear. I like the view of the Oxford professor C.S. Lewis who in his book, Mere Christianity, wrote the following. Here's another thing that used to puzzle me, says Lewis. Is it not frightfully unfair that this new life should be confined to people who have heard of Christ and been able to believe in him? But the truth is, God has not told us what his arrangements about the other people are. We do know that no man can be saved except through Christ. We do not know that only those who know him can be saved through him. This point is often invoked when appealing to the salvation of people who lived before the time of Christ, 
adults with severely limited cognitive abilities, babies and children who die young, and people today who have no reasonable opportunity to hear the gospel. For these categories of people, it's fairly easy to believe that they can be saved by Christ even though they can't know Christ. Number 10. Finally, a long time ago, I quit trying to understand everything and admitted the many limitations of my knowledge. St. Augustine advised that we should do our best to seek answers to difficult questions. Having done that, he said that we should, quote, rest patiently in unknowing, end quote. At the end of the day, it's not the parts of the Bible that I don't understand that bother me, such as the many questions about religious pluralism. Rather, it's the parts of the Bible that I do understand, like loving God with my whole heart and loving my neighbor as myself. And now for further reflections. Consider the extremes of atheism, which considers all religions as false, and pluralism, which considers all religions as true. Number two, what do you make of the proliferation of 10,000 distinct religions? In the Odyssey, Homer once wrote, all men need the gods. Number three, what are the strengths and weaknesses of the 10-point position I've outlined? Number four, why do so many people consider it wrong to try to convert others? Number five, what scriptures on this issue are particularly clear or unclear in your opinion? And finally, for, for a fuller treatment, see my book entitled Many Gods, Many Lords, or another excellent book by Harold Netland, Encountering Religious Pluralism. For books this week, I review Michael Pollan, In Defense of Food, An Eater's Manifesto, New York, Penguin, 2008, 244 pages. In his bestseller from 2006, The Omnivore's Dilemma, Berkeley journalist Michael Pollan focused on what he called the ecological and ethical dimensions of our eating choices, or, as one reviewer put it, balancing the demands of appetite and conscience. His current bestseller, In Defense of Food, turns to personal health and how a few simple guidelines make for eating that is both healthy and happy. If you've ever tried to decipher an ingredients label, you know that's no easy task. What, after all, are all those food-like substances which you can't pronounce? And why do the French eat so richly, worry so little about it, and enjoy better health? While we Americans have a nutrition obsession and an epidemic of obesity, such is what Poland calls our orthorexia, an unhealthy obsession with healthy eating that has landed most of us in dietary hell. Poland explains how we got here 
and how to get out. My aim in this book, he writes, is to help us reclaim our health and happiness as eaters. To do this, he defends real food, as opposed to all those fake food chemicals on a label that you can't pronounce. Poland has harsh words for the pseudoscience of the nutrition experts that reduce foods to its constitutive nutri nutrients, the government which collaborates with it, and the journalists who promote it. They have given us the infamous so-called Western diet that's killing us. Lots of processed foods and meats, lots of added fat and sugar, lots of everything, everything that is except vegetables, fruits, and whole grains. Poland suggests five fundamental transformations to our food that caused us to be overfed and undernourished. In the third and final section of his book, Poland expands on what he means with the oft-repeated mantra of his book, the seven words and three little rules, eat food, not too much, mainly plants. He suggests what he calls eating algorithms that are less intended to identify specific foods to eat or to avoid, and instead are guidelines to tell the difference between the two. For example, in his view, eating meat is fine. Your body needs fat. Having up to two glasses of wine per day is almost certainly healthy. When you go to the supermarket, stick to the periphery of the store where you'll find fresh foods and avoid the middle aisles with processed food fakes. Don't eat anything you can't pronounce. Don't eat anything that your grandmother wouldn't recognize. Spend a little more on real food, eat a little less, enjoy it all the more. If you follow Poland's common sense suggestions and vote with your fork, I dare say you'll enjoy food as a friend rather than as an, rather than as an enemy to battle. Michael Poland, in defense of food. For film this week, I review Vertigo from 1958. With 50 feature-length films to his credit, Alfred Hitchcock, who lived from 1899 to 1980, churned out nearly a film a year for the better part of his adult life. The year 2008 marks the 50th anniversary of Vertigo, a film of dark dreams, obsession of a type that is more like possession, madness, fear, love, and guilt, and no small amount of mystery and intrigue until the very final minutes. Vertigo is set in San Francisco. Jimmy Stewart stars as Scotty, a detective who had to retire from the police force because of a traumatic experiment, experience with heights. We know what his vertigo begot in the first minutes of the film, but not in the very last scene. Scotty does his college friend Gavin a favor, which is to tail his wife Madeline, who had been possessed by the long-dead Carlotta Valdez. That kindness turns out to be a distinctly bad idea. 
The scenery, the ominous musical score, the now quaint roles of gender and justice, and Hitchcock's genius for mining the depths of the human psyche all make Vertigo well worth watching 50 years later. Alfred Hitchcock, Vertigo from 1958. And finally this week, we continue more poems and hymns from Prudentius, who lived from 348 to 413. This week we've posted a hymn called Father Most High Be With Us. Father Most High be with us, unseen thy goodness showing. In Christ the Word incarnate, in spirit grace bestowing. O Trinity, O oneness of light and power exceeding. O God of God eternal, O God from both proceeding. While daylight hours are passing, we live and work before thee. Now ere we rest in slumber, we gather to adore thee. Our Christian name and calling of our new birth remind us the Spirit's gifts and sealing to firm obedience bind us. Be gone, ye powers of evil, with snares and wiles unholy. Disturb not with your temptings the spirits of the lowly. Depart, for Christ is present beside us, yea, within us. Away, his sign, ye know it, the victory, the victory shall win us. A while the body resteth, the spirit wakeful ever, abideth in communion with Christ who sleepeth never. To God the eternal Father, to Christ our sure salvation, to God the Holy Spirit, be endless adoration. Prudentius, Father Most High, be with us. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, April the 20th, 2008. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.